Thank you for downloading this sermon from Christ the Word Church. If you would like more information on how Christ the Word is reaching, raising, and teaching generations in Northwest Ohio and Southeast Michigan, please visit us online at ChristTheWord.com. As we start this off, and so if you would please stand, turn in your Bibles if you got one. We're just looking at two verses, Matthew 16, chapter 16, verses 17 and 18. This is what it says. Peter has just made the good confession. Jesus has just asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? Peter's just responded, you are the Christ, the son of the blessed one. And Jesus responds to Simon Peter and said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this promise from Jesus. We thank you that you have not left us nor abandoned us, but that you are very, very much here in our presence, where two or three are gathered in your name. There you are in the midst of them. We thank you for this, Lord. Be with us, and may you guide the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts together as we look at your holy word and consider it, what it means for our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. There's an interesting phenomenon that we've all witnessed this past year, and that phenomenon is related to masks, but it's not masks. The phenomenon is that crises serve as an accelerator. And this is something I really had never considered until the past 16 months. 16 months ago, some of you had the option of working from home if you wanted to, but for most of us, that wasn't an option. And I know that many of us still go to work, uh, but a lot of businesses have shimmied around things the way things work to make it possible for people to work remotely. In fact, I know some of you enjoyed this at the beginning, and now you're ready to have your third bedroom back. A lot has changed. Crisis is an accelerator. You know, you might have known children that grew up in a very hard home. Perhaps there was neglect, it was a bad environment, perhaps they had a parent die. What do we often say about those sorts of children when we say they had to grow up fast? Because of a crisis, it made a lot of things in their life accelerate, including maturity. In business culture, uh, we know that there are certain points that all businesses reach, and certain points of inevitable inevitable crisis. And these crises and how they're responded to either propel growth or they accelerate decline. I was up a a couple months ago, I think it was, Bob, with you at your farm, and you were showing me around your barns, showed me your new combine, showed me your huge tractor trailer, your your new uh, John Deere front, uh, front loader, back loader, whatever those are called. He's just got a, a, if you haven't been up to the Walter farm, you really should go and take your kids. <laughs> One at a time, I'm probably 50 of appointments, so you don't get anything in the ground this year. <laughs> but you really should go. It is an awesome time being around that equipment, hearing about his work is just wonderful. But I was up there, and he was saying, yeah, I bought all this new stuff in the, in the last year. And I said, why? Well, Bob got COVID, 
and had it badly and was in the hospital. And he said after he, he got out or in the midst of that, he started thinking, you know, is my farm the way I want it for the future? You know, if something happens to me, is my farm the way it really needs to be for Bobby, my son, to take it into the future and to be successful? And so crisis, your crisis, served as an accelerator for you to make some hard decisions and get some new equipment in your barns. This is what crisis does. Crisis served to accelerate. And for us as a local church, um, if it hadn't been for COVID, we, those of you watching online, you wouldn't be watching. We didn't have that kind of technological advancement, and crisis made us get with the 21st century, I suppose. Or maybe we wouldn't have done all the things on the building that we ended up doing because people were out of it and it allowed us to do There's some tangible things that we were able to see in the life of our church due to the past year. Crisis serves to accelerate. And as it relates to the church at large in America, COVID has obviously had an accelerating effect. If we've been paying attention, if we've been uh, alert, we no doubt have read stories, known people who shared personal experiences of things like seeming mass exodus in the church, whole limbs uh, lopped off the tree, Maybe to return, maybe not. I have seen signs around Toledo of many churches up for sale. Churches are closing their doors. They're putting their properties up. Sadly, factions and splits and, and fighting over leadership decisions have been commonplace. Um, many have happily swapped out the glorious living organism, which is the church. That's what Ephesians says this glorious living organism of God for something more like streaming on demand with no more connection or commitment than a, a follow on social media. The whole idea of being part of a church um, that ever has to one another is foreign to many more people today than it even was a couple of years ago. What do I mean by that? What does it mean to one another? Bear one another's burdens. Forgive one another. Love one another, sacrifice for each other, build each other up. All the things that a living organism does, a body, a family, you can't do if, if all you're doing is watching a screen. And this, is, this has become really, really prevalent. And it's a bankrupt and hollow view of what Jesus intends his church to be. I've heard some make comments about how COVID has weakened the church. And I'm sorry, but if that is your view, that's a delusion. That's a delusion. The strength of the church has been surrendered over time, just like Samson surrendered his hair to Delilah. COVID has not weakened the church. The desire to be liked by everyone and to throw wide the straight and narrow gate and way has weakened the church. The setting aside of inconvenient scripture over time to make us feel better and more happy in our sins has weakened the church. The love of money has weakened the church. We heard a little bit about that in Sunday school. And from Mike Arndt on Friday night, men, do you love Jesus? Another way to ask that question is, do you love money? Right? No one can say he loves me and love money at the same time. The love of money has weakened the church. The desire for worldly power and influence has weakened the church. The abandonment of Christ's gospel, this word, for other gospels, the social gospel, and many other things have weakened the church. The churches in the world, the way a ship is in the ocean, 
And that's the way that it should be. We can't be out of this world. We're to be in the world and not of it. That's what Jesus says. Bad things start happening when the ocean gets into the ship. And the water has been seeping into the hull of this ship for many, many, many years. And COVID is only the storm that's popped up that's made the ship totter. For a long time, the American church has reassured herself that she is strong because the band sounds phenomenal. We've got great tech. We've got really, really, really good coffee. Our graphics really hold their own. The pastor has been recognized by important people. He's even been asked to coach secular people on leadership. There's a lot of people responding after the message or tapping that button on the screen. They have a right view of baptism. They're planning churches. None of these things in an individual case is wrong. And some of these things we've experienced as a sign of fruit. But the reality is, is that far, for far too long, the church has done its best to ape and conform to culture, all the while trying to maintain that, in fact, it's Christian. And God, through something like COVID, is calling our bluff. It's not my intent, though, with this series, with this morning, to point at the church's problems while feeling swell about ourselves. That's not my intent. It shouldn't be any of ours. You know what? I love the church, and I hope you love the church. And it's my desire that over this summer, as we consider what the Scripture says about this wonderful, beautiful organism that, that Jesus has, has given to us and placed us into, that it will grow our love for the church. That maybe it will rekindle our love for the church. Or maybe for some of you, that it will give you, br bring your love for the church to a place it's never been. But it's important as we start this morning to understand that the problems that we see today have been problems for a very long time. Don't buy into the idea that everything that you may see that's wrong has happened quickly. These things have very long roots. These things have very long histories. We're not going to go through all of them, but I, I, I need to say it up front so that we're on the same page. The past year has not weakened the church. It's only accelerated the long-standing problems that have been with us for a very long time. So we've got problems pointed some of them out. What are we going to do? What do we need? We need the power of God. The church in America needs the power of God. We need the conviction and the repentance that is given to us by the Holy Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit to flow through our aisles and then to flow through our land. Remember, the scripture says that judgment will start with the household of God. So we need the Holy Spirit here. And then we need it to go out into the parking lot and across our nation. We need God to bring his power, the power of revival, and that's something we can't manufacture. And he can. He can bring it. He's brought it many, many times. Again, Sunday school, my, my dad alluded to it just a moment. He was making the point that things aren't worse now than they've been routinely all throughout history. History is a cycle. And these times come, and God acts and moves. In the days of Elijah the prophet, things were dark as well. That was a long time ago. But in the days of Elijah the prophet, Israel, God's chosen people, the people that he had called out from Egypt, were living in a really bad way. What do we know? We know, if we, if we know the, 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 some of what Isaiah says, he, at one point he says, God, I am alone 
am left. I'm your only man. There's no one else here. When they left Egypt, they had half a million people. They had the sons of Aaron. They had, they had Moses. They had the priests. And by Elijah's day, I alone am left. We know that the king over Israel at that time was an evil, spineless man, Ahab. And his wife was maybe worse, Jezebel, a wicked, wicked ruler over the people of Israel. We know that there weren't really any prophets of God left, and yet there were hundreds of prophets of Baal. And we're told the story of the showdown between Elijah and the prophets of Baal. He confronts Israel, and he says, how long are you going to go between two opinions? If, if Baal is God, follow him. And, but if God is God, follow him. And there are 450 prophets of Baal, and he calls them to a showdown. And they go up on top of the mountain, and he says, build an altar, put an offering on that, and call out to your God. And the God who responds with fire and lightning, that, 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 that flames shoot down, and take that sacrifice, he is God. And so you probably know the story. The, the prophets of Baal, 450 of them, start jumping around and dancing and singing, calling out to their God, and nothing happens. And the day goes on, and nothing happens. And around noon, Elisha starts mocking them. Nothing happens. They start gashing themselves, as was their custom, with sticks and st stones and sharp objects. Nothing happens. And at the end of the day, what are we told? Well, we're told that Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. So all the people came near to him, and he repaired the altar of God. It had fallen into disrepair. It wasn't being used. An altar of stones doesn't fall into disrepair that quickly. This has been going on a long time. Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of tribes and set them up. He built the altar in the name of the Lord and he made a trench around the altar large enough to hold two measures of seed and he arranged the wood and cut the ox in pieces and he laid it on the altar and he laid it on the wood and he told the people to fill four pitches of water and dump it on the wood. You ever try and light a wet fire? It doesn't work too well. He said, dump those pitchers of water on the wood. And then he filled the trough. And then he called out to the Lord. And you know the story. You likely, you know that the fire of the Lord fell and it consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and it licked up the water that was in the trench. And then all the people saw it and what was their response? The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. The Spirit of the Lord was working through Elijah in the hearts of the people of Israel that evening. So why are we preaching on the church? Why do I bring up Elijah? Why does it matter? Why is it important? It's so that we, listen here, it's so that we can, in the same spirit that Elijah had, be arranging the wood on the altar so that we can be building the altar according to God's prescription and arranging the wood so that when God works, we will be ready and prepared for his fire. We must be ordering our hearts and minds in correct biblical thinking about what the church is, what the work, church, work, church's work consists of, what its character is, what, its commitment, what a commitment to the church requires of us so that we're ready for his spirit to work. We need our hearts and minds in line with this scripture if he is to work in us and through us. Do we understand that? Do we understand that? Remember, 
the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth, seeking the man whose heart is completely devoted to him, so that he what? Can strongly, may strongly support him. The eyes of God search this earth looking for the man whose heart is committed to his way, so that God might support that man. I already mentioned Elijah at one point complained to the Lord, Mount Horeb. Then he said, I'm the only one left. It's faithless out there, Lord. But you know, the wonderful thing is that God had eyes to see things Elijah couldn't. God's eyes roam the earth seeking the man whose heart is fully devoted to him so that he might strongly support him. And God said back to Elisha, no, Elijah, you're wrong. You're wrong. I have 400, 7,000 rather, 450 prophets of Baal, 7,000 who I've kept for myself, who have not bowed their knee to Baal. What a great and powerful truth that it is from God that he desires to strongly support us when our hearts are fully devoted to him. And if this promise applies to the individual, it certainly applies to the whole congregation. So as we consider the church, what it is, what it does, our thinking should be informed and in line with God's word. And when we do that, we are preparing for his spirit to work. That's what we're doing. So now having spent a little bit of time broadly laying out some of the issues we might see in the church, in the Western church, and why it is important for us to conform our thinking to the Scripture, I want to consider this morning with the rest of our time together what the church is. How would you define the church? Think about it. What would you say? What is the church? The word church can be used in various ways to imply different things. Let's go to church. Uh, For a long time, my kids had this fantastic game where as we were coming down Central Avenue, as we started coming by Ozzy's, the first person to say, I see the church, felt proud, felt swell about themselves, right? I had to sort of nuke it when they started saying, I see the church at Centennial. I'm like, that is a lie. We're on our way to church. You, should, <laughs> you need to be honest about when you see the church. Right? You know, and, you <laughs> and so obviously they're, 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 they're saying the church house, but that's often, the, you know, we're, we gotta go, we're, going to, we're going to church. Another way is we're going to be late for church. We're not talking about the building itself, but we're talking about the service, the, the things that are going on in the building. Or sometimes people say, well, I was a part of that church, but now I'm at this church, or I've moved and now I'm attending this church. And they don't mean a a building necessarily. I mean, maybe they're at a church plant that travels from building to building depending on the month or time of year. They don't mean a location. They don't mean just a worship service. They mean a local congregation of the people of God. Or sometimes when the word church is used, It's used in the way that we've been using it together to sort of, well, I've been using it in two different ways, so I'll I'll spell those out. The Western church, which is an extension of the local congregation, the Western church in in our 
in our country, in this portion of the world. Or then you have the universal church, which is what? It's the church, all God's people, all over the world, at different places in time and space. So it's not just all those that are in Toledo this morning. It's not just all those that are in the U.S. this morning. It's everybody in the whole world today, different time zones. And all the way back at the beginning of history, and if we're thinking about what the Bible teaches, it reaches until the very last day because there is going to be a last day. There is going to be a last day. And on the last day, Jesus is going to come and he's going to claim his church. So the universal church, big C church, is the church of of all those people from the beginning all the way until the last day. The word church in English is translated from the Greek. And the word that it's translated from is ekklesia. The very first time ekklesia is used in the New Testament, it is used in the verses that we read from Matthew chapter 16. That's why I wanted us to use that passage this morning as we start. That is the very first time ekklesia is used. Jesus says, on you, Peter, I will build my ekklesia. And then from that point on to the end of Revelation, it's used over a hundred times more. And one of the things that's worth pointing out is the term in Greek is not religious in nature. So we hear church, and we assume we put it under certain connotations, right? And it is a religious connotation. That's fine. But in this time, it was not. When the apostles wrote ecclesia, it wasn't a word making people think of a building where people came to worship or uh, doing anything religious in nature. In fact, both in secular writings and various places in the New Testament, it's used to signify things like city councils. So, if you were to turn to the book of Acts, chapter 19, um, what we have in that book is uh, the clerk of Ephesus named Demetrius addressing a group of citizens, a lawful council, as it might say in your, in your Bible if you're using NASB, I believe. Uh, that lawful council is the same word that Jesus uses when he says to Peter, I will build my church, my ecclesia. A lawful council is the same word, ecclesia. At the time of Jesus and the apostles, the word church, which is specifically in nature, basically also meant a gathering. That's the way it was used. A gathering or an assembly. Obviously, the church is more than a building. It's more than a program. Even used in a secular sense, it's a word that has always had to do with a gathering of a people for a specific and united purpose. Now, as the word church was used more and more by New Testament writers, it took on a meaning that went beyond the idea of gathering. But it's never used in a way that's unrelated to the idea of gathering. Even in heaven, what is it going to be? It's going to be a great gathering for the wedding feast. It's going to be a great gathering before the throne where we will worship God saying, holy, 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 casting our jewels and gold and trophies at his feet. It's the people of God, even in heaven, united for a singular purpose and intent. Obviously, the church isn't just any sort of gathering, any sort of assembly. The word ecclesia is a noun. And it's made by compressing the preposition ek, meaning out, with the verb kaleo, meaning to call. And this is, this is going to help us as we think about what the church is. So whenever you read the word church in the New Testament, you can do this. You can, you can think of it 
as referring to the assembly of those that have been called out. When you're reading in the New Testament, you cross that word, you can think these are God's called out people. This is helpful and it goes way beyond the idea of, a base, uh, of an assembly. But we also need to consider um, who does the calling out and what they're being called out from. If we look back at our verse from Matthew, we will see who is doing the calling out. Jesus says, referring to Peter, upon this rock, I will build my church. Jesus does the, the calling out. God does the calling out. The Bible teaches that he has called out from the beginning of time. All through the Bible, Jesus and, and God are calling out. I'd like to think of a few examples. God called Noah to leave behind his former occupation and his way of life and to build this stinking big ship in the middle of the land that had never seen rain. He, that required that he set aside his former way of life, doing who knows what, except we are told he was a righteous man, and start hammering and nailing and cutting and sawing. And then he called him out again when he said, all right, now you gather these animals and your family and get on the boat. He called them out from the neighbors and all those that were living on earth at that time. Abraham, a famous passage, he called Abraham out out of Ur of the Chaldeans to a place that he did not know. A place that God promised would be his future land where his inhabitants would dwell and live together. God calls Israel out of Egypt. God called the Apostle Paul out of a life of persecuting the church to a life of building that church. Jesus called Peter and Andrew to a life of being fishers and men, away from their nets, and to his gospel, his word. Jesus constantly called the crowds, and he said, come to me, you weak and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Just as Jesus called Abraham to leave behind his homeland, just as he called Israel out of Egypt and into the promised land, so he has called you and me out of the domain of darkness and into the kingdom, into his light. All those who hear his voice and respond are his called out ones. That's, that's what the scripture teaches. So what is the church? Or more accurately, who is the church? The church is the people of God that are called out from the world and set apart for holiness. The church is all the faithful in heaven and on earth who have been and will be united to Jesus Christ. Interestingly, we may touch on this more later, in John chapter 17, when Jesus is praying to his Father, he says, I pray that you would not only make these one, he's referring to, it's a, John 17 is a prayer where Jesus is, is right at the precipice, right at the threshold of Judas betraying him. And at that moment in time, Jesus prays to his Father on behalf of his disciples because he's told the disciples that the Holy Spirit is going to come and through the Holy Spirit's power, they're going to do even more than what he has done or what they would do if he still remained with them. He says, it's better that I go and that the Holy Spirit come. He's told them that. 
And it's a good thing he told them that because he also told them that there was going to be significant trial and significant hardship to be endured. And that there were going to be those that fell away. And that there were going to be false teachers. So Jesus is saying this to his disciples. And then he, and then he goes. He loves his disciples. He loves us. He goes and he prays to his father and he says, make them one. One of the things he says is, make them one even as, as we are one, Lord, Father. And he says, not just these, but those that will hear their words. And in that prayer, Jesus is praying for you. So, trying to think where I, where I launched from that from. The church is all those who, oh, I, I, I know what it was. The church is all those who are living right now or who will be united with Christ one day. One day. Because history is not finished yet. The last day has not yet arrived. These are the called out ones. In all of our thinking about what the church is and does, in our thinking about what we are to be and do as a local congregation of Christ's bride, specifically, we must start by realizing that it all begins with being called out from the world and called into the kingdom of God. Or stated another way, if we aren't living lives that have been called out of sin and called into his holiness, the other stuff doesn't matter. We're right at the beginning of a, a 12 weeks. We're going to be studying a lot of things. Hospitality. Hospitality is great, right? I think Martha Stewart says something about hospitality, doesn't she? Well, hospitality is great. But it doesn't matter if you haven't been called out. That's the point I'm trying to say. It all starts, the church starts by being the called out ones. Everything else is subsequent to this reality that the church is God's called out ones. Think about the nature of being called out. It means that you are identified as different. It means that you look different because God has made you a new creation. And it would be nice if being called out only made us look different to God. A one-sided mirror type thing, right? Well, I'm, I'm different. It's sort of the platonic thing we heard about in Sunday school too. I'm different, but it's in my heart. It's all in my chest and in my mind. And I really look the same as I did, man, 10 years ago, but eh, not to worry, this has changed. And God can see that. Nobody else can. My neighbors can't. My coworker, my boss, my wife can't. But I'm really a changed man. And doesn't that feel good? No. No. Being called out is something that's not only seen by God, it's seen by those that are around us. We look different. The old is gone. We, we don't just look different. That's the other thing. We don't just look different. One day I had half a head of hair, the next day I shaved my head bald. I looked different. I wasn't really different. It's not a matter of looks. Christianity is not about looks. It's a matter of, of being. That's part of the reason why you can't have church online. It's a matter of images, looks, that's it. You don't have to live as the church, with the church, in the church, for the church. So it's not just a matter of looks, it's a matter of being different, a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. It means that you're going to be, you're going to stand out. It's an impossibility to live conformed to this world and be called out by Christ. 
You can't have it both ways. 1 John, I read this last night to my kids and we talked about it. 1 John chapter 3, verse 9 says, No one who is born of God, no one who's been called out, practices sin. No one. Why not? Because Jesus is, has called us and continues to call us in his word away from our sins, away from our former ways of life. Grace of God has been given to us so that we have the power to live in a new way as those that have been called out. Now, it's not like the Mormons either because I don't know about you, I've met a lot of Mormons out west. We took a trip out west a couple years ago. Tons of Mormons out there. I was just uh, overseas and the Mormons have a huge sway even in the Balkans. There's tons of Mormon missionaries out there and they have a much larger foothold than the, the evangelical church does. But Mormons, if, if, you, if you know them, they have a, a, a face that's a lot of religion, but it doesn't go very deep because actually what they want is a, is a bit of religion, but a whole lot of worldly glory, beauty, and perfection. And so what you see in them is actually, man, everything that everyone in the world wishes they had, right? That blog that they get paid for, a lot of money, this, that. They, they do look different in a way. And they have a little, they have a veneer of religiosity that says this is the motivation. But really, man, it's those old same sinful desires because they don't know Jesus. And so they end up chasing and building their lives to look like everything that the world has. That's not what being called out is. And for as much as we might be tempted to long for some of that, we need to recognize that those are wrong desires, and Christ is calling us to be, live in a different sort of way. You know, um, we are, have been blessed to have a whole lot of different people from a whole lot of different areas in the world um, in this church over the years, and more recently, and uh, one of those people is, uh, is a college student named Patrick. Sorry. Hey, Patrick. And my wife was talking with his mother. Patrick is a I don't know if you're a citizen, but you're, you're from Canada, you're here studying by way of Egypt, because your parents are from Egypt, right? And so my, my, my wife had a lovely time talking with your mom last week, and after church, she said, you know, Patrick's mom was telling me that in Egypt, you know, part of the reason they eventually had to come to Canada was because they just couldn't even live in Egypt as a Christian, because you couldn't go to the market because you would be shunned from this market or from that market. You'd be treated like dirt on the street. You, you just, it got so bad that they said, we, we want to live somewhere else. And she's not shunning. <laughs> Certainly, she's not shunning, looking like she's been called out. All that oppression came because she refused to hide it. There, she knew that she would be treated a certain way if she didn't wear a head covering. There, if you're a Christian... They have a pretty good bet you're a Christian just because of your name. A lot of Christians value worldwide naming your uh, Christian names. She didn't take her necklace that had a cross on it and, you know, put it under her shirt. And so she got persecuted for it. That's, that's, that's an example of somebody who's actually, you know, she looks like she's been called out. She's being called out by culture and she's being called out by God, right? In the early church, I really, I hope you guys understand that I hope all of you will be here next week at 9.15 for this class on the early church. In the early church, what are we told next? 
we're told that the church lived in such a way that they gave, in a huge time of upheaval, and uh, I mean, you have Nero, you have factions, you have, you have all sorts of stuff going on. The church had a common pot, and that there were, there were no needs. No one had any needs, any financial needs, because the church was living in a different way than culture was with regards to their money. Uh, the church was called out by God and <laughs> sort of shunned by the Roman government because they refused to acknowledge that their, their religion was one of many. They could have gotten a, an official stamp on their church card that said, yeah, you can operate carefree with our support. But they refused to do that. Why? Because they had been called out from God. They weren't going to be one of 50 religions, and you could take your pick. They were called out to the true and living way, the way of Jesus Christ. They came to a, a, a meal, the Lord's Supper. I mean, you think about this stuff, where slaves would sit potentially with their masters at the same table, and how countercultural that would be. Where the poor would be with the wealthy. Where ladies that had been sexually promiscuous may have sat at the same table with former Jews that would have condemned her. That's the kind of thing that the church is. That's, the kind of, that's, 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 that's why it's so countercultural then, and it should be countercultural today and powerful today. That's what Jesus is calling us to out of that former way of life into his new and living way. That's the church. But there are many who think it works the opposite way or the other way around. That By being a part of a of church, by inserting yourself into some sort of assembly, some group, some Bible study, some small group, by saying the right kinds of things to your youth leader, the things you know will make her or him happy, by giving some money to a mission or to the church, that you are ipso facto a part of God's people because of those sort of acts, those, those things you do. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. It didn't work that way in the Old Testament, though some thought it did. I want to read to you from Deuteronomy. Israelites in the Old Testament were prone to thinking in the same way. And in Deuteronomy 29, it says, Beware, lest there be among you a root, a person, a faction, a group, bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. One who's a part of Israel, a part of God's chosen people traveling along with them, setting up shops, setting up their tents right along with everyone else. One who, when he hears the word of this sworn covenant, my word, my law, which I bring you into, he blesses himself in his heart. Not openly, in his heart. And he says, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. So though I walk this way, I'm safe because I'm with this group of people. I'm safe because I've given my money. I'm safe because I did every single one of the 27 studies, and I actually wrote out my answer. Ha! There's a warning to the whole church here. Don't think you're safe just simply because of, alone, because of your baptism, because of church membership, because of youth group attendance, because of the fact that you've had the Lord's Supper. If you have not been called out of Jesus from one way of life into a new way of life, from one heart condition to a new heart condition. Jesus says many will say, Lord, Lord, on that day. Lord, Lord, when did we not do this or not do that? And he will say, I didn't know you. 
I didn't know you. Because they had not been called out by him. This past Friday night, we, a lot of the us men were together and Mike Arndt was challenging us on priorities of, uh, of a godly man. And one of the things he said at the end during a Q&A, he was asked a question about his parenting style. And he said that as he's gotten older, he's decided that he purposely is going to be less specific about the exact things he tells people to do. Because when he was a younger man, he thought that being a good parent was doing all of the right things. Being a good father was doing all the right things and all the right steps. The forms, and forms are important. He wasn't saying they weren't. I won't say that they're not. They are important. But as he's realized as he gotten older, what his children need most is a father who loves the Lord. A father who reads the word of God and who knows it. A father who is committing his way to the Lord. And then it all kind of gets easier. It's not so it's not so complicated. You don't have to ask so many nitpicky questions about, well, was it six months or seven months? And, you know, this or that. If your heart is seeking the Lord, man, there's a lot that, that gets easier. It rolls downhill. I appreciate that. Thanks, Matt, Mike. You can't live by the fruit of the Spirit if you don't have the fruit of the Spirit living inside of you. You're not part of the church that Jesus is building if you haven't been called out by him. Not just on Saturday, but throughout life. You're not called out if you're still conformed to the thinking and the pleasures and the motivations and the self-love that the world seeks after. Many are led into destruction because they think that going to church is the same thing as being a part of the church, being a called out one of Jesus Christ. What has Christ called you out from? What has he called you to leave behind? What habits, friendships, identities, practices. How are you radically different than the way that you used to be? Are your desires and motivations rooted in what Jesus commands? Is God your Father? If not, the, the words we already heard from Christ are for you. He said, come to me. He calls you this morning. Come to me. All you are, who are weak and heavy laden and I will give you rest. He also says elsewhere, whoever comes to me, I will certainly never cast out. He is calling. He desires you to follow him. Will you? For those of you who have been called out by Jesus, for those of you that the love, uh, the, I'm sorry, for those of you that love um, his church, I want to encourage you that Jesus is, has not forsaken his church. Our passage, may I remind you, to Peter, he says, I will build my church. Jesus is still building his church. He's building it, and though it looks real messy out there, and though there's a lot of work to be done, I want to tell you it is a wonderful, exciting, glory-filled thing to be a part of his church. It's a time of pruning, yes. But if you know anything about pruning correctly, the reason that you prune is to allow growth. The reason he cuts off the dead branches is to make room for fruitful branches. And so praise God for the hardship. Praise God for his faithfulness and see it in times of pruning. And may we together stir up our hearts and minds to recommit ourselves to 
being his church better than we have, to being more faithful, to being more biblical in our thinking about why we do what we're doing. Maybe we'd be convicted about it, not just do it because that's what we've been doing for a very long time. May it be something that we're actively engaged in. That's what he calls us to, nothing less. We need to be like Elijah. Elijah. Preparing for God's power. It's not our power, remember that. It's God's power. We need to be preparing, building the altar according to God's design. He specified it. No, no pretty stones on that altar. Rough cut to remind you of your nature. Ain't two fit together perfectly in that whole bunch. Rough cut stones and the wood. Are you excited about being called out for this sort of purpose? I hope you are. And I'm excited to see how God will work in all of us together this summer. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would be glorified in our midst. Father, I pray that uh, you would make your bride glorious to us, that we would cherish it with a fraction of the love that Jesus loves his bride with, Father. Father, I pray that uh, you would be honored week to week as we grow and learn together. And we pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.